Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering resources to Hawaii's educators, including the workshop Teaching for Artistic Behaviors, open to the community, honolulumuseum.org educators. Hawaii Public Radio is hiring. Whether you love organizing events, setting and achieving goals, crunching numbers, or providing support through administrative work, come check out the positions we have available. If you're passionate about HPR and want to contribute to our success as a community-supported organization, we invite you to apply. Learn more online at hawaiipublicradio.org jobs. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Performing Arts Festival, presenting Offenbach's operetta Orpheus in the Underworld, featuring the Can Can July 16th and 17th at Kahilu Theater in Waimea, hawaiipperformingartsfestival.org. We're back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It could be a turning point for those on the wait list for housing at the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Governor David Ige signed a historic uh, law Monday that dedicates $600 million in funding to offer 99-year leases to qualified Native Hawaiians. HPR reporter Kuve Hiraishi joins us this morning. Good Hello. morning, Catherine. Yes, we've been following this legislation all session. So House Bill uh, 2511 uh, was signed into law yesterday, providing that lump sum to really expedite the development and, and construction of, according to the department right now, on the list, about 2,000 Hawaiian homestead lots uh, on, on every island that it has land holdings. So Maui, Moloka'i, Lana'i, Kauai, O'ahu, and and the big island there. And so, but we know that there are about 28,000 uh, Native Hawaiians on the wait list who are still waiting. We've got about 10,000 Native Hawaiian ohana in homestead communities. Uh, and this goes back to the 1921 Hawaiian Homes Commission Act. And in that, as you mentioned, qualified Native Hawaiians, uh, this program is for uh, Native Hawaiians with 50 or more percent Hawaiian blood. And for them, they get for a dollar a year, a 99-year lease, if the department can uh, develop these lots. So the $600 million are very much uh, welcomed by DHHL Director William Ilaw Jr., who was there at the bill signing yesterday, saying, you know, this infusion of money brings the agency one step closer to realizing the vision of, of Prince Kuhio Kalaniana Ole, who spearheaded the homestead program about 100 years ago. It is the most consequential allocation of funding that the department has received in its history of existence. What this will do is will expedite construction that would have been stretched out 10, 15 years from now, it'll expedite it into three, four, five years because that's what the legislature tasked us with. And given the resources, we will ensure that it gets done. So DHHL uh, is still finalizing the list of proposed projects uh, for which the money will be used, but the current plan does, as I mentioned, have about 2,000 lots in it, mostly on Oahu, where uh, we ha uh, the department has the highest or longest uh, wait list in terms of demand for housing and housing at a good price point. And so uh, Ila says, you know, the soonest that the, they'd be able to get some of these beneficiaries off the wait list and into homes would be uh, next spring when things go, uh, if things go as planned, the agency will be breaking ground on about 60 lots uh, of yet to be acquired land near uh, Kapolei High School. And uh, we were also blessed to see a Big Island Hawaiian homesteader, a homestead leader, Bo Kahui, who lives in Laiopua Hawaiian Homestead, which is over on the corner side of the Big Island. He flew in for the bill signing, you know, and he said you could, you could tell when I spoke to him. He was still sort of in shock at what was about to happen. What this bill does, um, $600 million, is provide the necessary, and not enough, by the way, but the necessary uh, 
uh, funding to initiate uh, many of the projects that have been long overdue. And also provide the kind of infrastructure, uh, water source development, roads. Uh, you know, no, it's, no one wants to talk about that, but that's what costs um, homesteaders, I think, a lot in terms of the housing costs uh, to move on to in homesteads. So infrastructure is, in, you know, indeed a big part of the cost of lot development for the department with a price tag of about $150,000 per lot. And that's uh, in an easy-to-develop spot like Kapole. But for lands out uh, where uh, Kahui lives in Laiopua, water source development has actually held off a lot of progress on developing uh, homestead lots on the Kona side. And so this money would help to do some of that infrastructure uh, development. Uh, but another thing happened yesterday that we haven't mentioned is a uh, Governor Ige also signed the Kalima lawsuit settlement, which is going to um, help with $328 million in terms of claims for about two, more than 2,000, almost 3,000 uh, people that were on, on the wait list for so long, uh, including Kahui. Right. So, I mean, that's the big stick, right? It took a lawsuit in that case to kind of shake that money mm-hmm. free, and, and now we have almost twice that amount Going into going yeah, in. Native Hawaiian hands. And, and for uh, the department, uh, they've got to come up with a strategic plan to send to the legislature uh, by December 10th to uh, really tell them where they'd like to, how they'd like to use this money and that final project list. And part of that is uh, taking into consideration that some of these uh, folks on uh, the set, uh, part of the settlement um, will have some extra money to put towards a homestead lot should they be offered one. Right, and then a part of this, uh, the formula also includes what affordable rentals too, right? Right, that is also on on the list, I believe, in uh, Laiopua there on the on the Big Island, and then also uh, out in Kapolei. All right, so uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Um, uh, but the work begins. The hard work begins. <laughs> Thank exactly. you. Thank Thanks. you so much, Kuvehi. We have been hearing from HPR's Kuvehi Reishi about the historic boost to the Department of Hawaiian Homelands budget to help get more Native Hawaiians off the wait list and into housing. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. We have an interview with the creator of Lilo and Stitch coming up later in the show. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we are testing your knowledge of the Disney classic. The film takes place on Kauai, and the story revolves around a six-year-old Hawaiian girl named Lilo and the blue koala-like alien she adopts as her dog and named Stitch. As you know, several well-known local artists were tapped to contribute to the film. Characters Nani and David were voiced by local actors Tia Carrere and Jason Scott Lee, respectively. Kumuhula Kuneba Muk choreographed the hula sequence in the film's beginning, and Mark Kelihoumalu and the Kamehameha School's Children's Chorus recorded two songs for the soundtrack. But how much do you know about Stitch, the experimental creature created in a lab and who loves Elvis Presley music? For today's quiz, what is Stitch's experiment number? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NareedHawaii.com. Health officials are watching the COVID variants BA4 and BA5 continue to spread with predictions that BA5 will emerge as the dominant strain across the country. Kaiser Permanente says its COVID case count is between 12 and 20 as of yesterday with only one individual in the intensive care unit. This morning we talked to Dr. Uh, Tarkin Collis, the chief of the Department of Infectious Diseases at Kaiser, about the snapshot uh, in its care system and what we ought to be on guard for as we work through the summer and start off the new school year. We're certainly seeing an unbelievable number of infections as these new variants, which are all sort of genetic children and grandchildren of the original BA1, the Omicron that came out in January or so, in Hawaii at least. And these subvariants that we're dealing with, BA2 and BA2.12.1, and now BA4 and 5, especially BA5, you know, they make their hay by being able to evade the immune protection that has been built up from prior vaccinations or infections. And it's very easy to become infected with them, even if you are not new in terms of your immune system's familiarity with prior variants. Luckily, a lot of those infections you know, tend to be much less severe than if you had been infected without being vaccinated or boosted or previously infected. And so the spectrum of the disease that we're seeing, although occasionally certainly severe and, and certainly deadly at times, is generally much more of an outpatient than an inpatient experience. What we saw, for example, in the Delta wave back in the fall, September or so, was an unbelievable number of people who'd never seen the infection before and were unvaccinated, ending up on ventilators and crowding the hospitals and the ICUs. Now, a lot of the folks that we're seeing in the hospital have been previously infected or vaccinated, and for whatever reason, they're medically frail, and even an immune system that has handled the infection before struggles a bit, and folks end up in the hospital, but in much smaller numbers. And they tend to be what I'm calling the elderly elderly often. They're folks who are on the older side of the elderly spectrum, 70s, 80s, 90s, even 100 or more. And it's just enough to tip them over, even though they've been effectively vaccinated before. And the young folks who have been vaccinated tend to do well and tend to stay out of the hospital. And and that's been a nice shift to see. Well, what about uh, the numbers as far as uh, the folks are being affected that may or may not have had boosters? Yes, we're certainly seeing that effect. I think of the people that we're seeing in the hospital, again, many of whom are elderly or, or otherwise medically frail, many of them have not been boosted. They've had two shots, perhaps. It's often been a year or more since their last shot. We do occasionally see folks who've had one or even two boosters end up hospitalized, but that's quite rare. It's pretty clear that that third shot especially, and for many folks, a second booster, which for most is is a fourth shot, it really is helpful in, in keeping your immune system at the ready to prevent serious infection. So it's a representation from across the spectrum, but in general, the older and the further you're out from your last vaccination, the more prone you are to end up um, hanging out with us in the hospital, unfortunately. And what are you seeing just as far as uh, our uh, younger population? Are, are you seeing any hospitalizations of children? Yes, but rarely. Most will end up at, at Capilla, although we have occasional ones at, at Kaiser and Queens as well and, and HPH. But the numbers have been relatively modest. You know, I think one myth that's important to dispel is that is that COVID is universally mild among children, and that's not the case. You know, we've had nationally somewhere around 450 children, less than five, die of COVID in the U.S., and that each one of those is a terrible tragedy. So like many infections, this one can be rougher on you if you're a young child, very different than an adolescent or teenager, even though in some cases, even those kids can get quite sick. And and again, I think there's a tendency to disregard the effects of long COVID, which definitely happen in children as well and, and can be quite debilitating to a child's life. Even if they don't end up in the hospital, they can be quite affected by the infection. So definitely one worth preventing and avoiding if, if, if possible. And I have friends who've just been recently diagnosed with uh, COVID and, you know, they have 
varying symptoms and are just curious if there's any difference between the severity and the symptoms between, you know, BA4 and BA5, uh, which the health department, you know, says is circulating. Yes, I think it's too early to know, actually, Catherine. And, and I think what's also very hard for us to sort out is the effect of intrinsic differences in the variants from one another, as opposed to the landscape that they find themselves in of a very highly immunized and previously infected population. So, for example, it's harder to tell if BA5 is less mild or, or more mild than previous subvariants, in large part because at the time BA5 is hitting us, so many people have been infected with BA1 or BA2 or 212.1, and so their immune response can be quite different and hard to tell that apart from the virus itself. But I would say, as a whole, we're certainly not seeing a suggestion yet that BA5 is worse for you, and I'll take that as good news. All of the current variants we're dealing with are all you know, what we call drifted viruses. These are variants that arose from sort of sequential mutations from the original BA1, which is really the first time in the pandemic that we've seen that sort of genetic drifting, something that we associate more with flu, you know, when the original Wuhan strain came out of China and then morphed into D614G, as we called it, and then alpha waves and then delta waves. These were all variants that popped up spontaneously, separate from one another, likely in different parts of the world. But really since January, since we had BA1, the original Omicron hit, every variant we've had has actually been a drifted variant of the original. And in some ways that may prove to be good news over time, but, but what we're all keeping our eye out for is whether an entirely new variant that isn't of the Omicron ilk pops up down the road, and that's something that we're all concerned about and, and hopeful doesn't happen. So what do you think we should be on alert for, knowing what we know about the trends as to where some of these variants have popped up and, and our experience here in Hawaii? Well, I think what we're seeing in Europe, and Europe usually leads the way in, in many respects in terms of the American experience, is that BA5 is certainly the most slippery in terms of its ability to evade prior immunity and is causing quite a few infections and becoming dominant in just about every country that has seen it. When we look at Israel, which is over 70% BA5, and the UK, which is somewhere around where we are in the US, 50% plus, and certainly Portugal and South Africa, which came before, all of those countries, once BA5 took a foothold, definitely caused increases in cases and at some level increases in hospitalizations. The hospitalization number can be very hard to sort out because many hospitals like our own screen everyone on admission to the hospital for COVID. And it can be very hard to sort out from gross numbers, the number of people hospitalized from COVID as opposed to the number of people who break an arm, come to the hospital, need to be hospitalized for, for surgery, let's say, and happen to have COVID and they're hospitalized with COVID instead of from it. There's really only one state in the U.S. that I know, which is Massachusetts, that separates out in its own metrics, whether you're hospitalized because of COVID, which in their current telling about 30% of patients are, rather than hospitalized and COVID was something that they just found on admission, which again is about 70% in Massachusetts. Those things can be a little hard to parse, but the point is that hospitalization numbers don't always reflect severity of disease because you're picking up a lot of incidental infections in folks as well. But be that as it may, Europe is definitely seeing an increase in the number of hospitalized patients with COVID, and so are we in the United States, although to a less degree certainly than we saw during Omicron or during Delta. And the number of intensive care unit admissions is certainly far lower than we saw last fall, and, and that's very good news and reflects, I think, a lot of immune recognition on the part of people who've been vaccinated or previously infected. I think we're at an interesting point in the pandemic, you know, Catherine. I mean, clearly, I think a lot of people especially in different parts of the country or different parts of the world or even you know, within a state. People are just done with the pandemic, and you can see that in terms of masking decisions, and I understand that. It's been a very hard couple of years, and the general experience with COVID right now is just much less lethal than it once was. But on the other hand, I think we will see significant uptick in community infections with BA5 likely over the next month or so. It's very hard to have a crystal ball, but that's clearly what the tea leaves are suggesting. And a subset of those folks are going to get quite sick either acutely and just feel miserable or possibly with longer COVID down the road, which is something we still don't understand. So it's definitely infection worth avoiding if you don't have to catch it. Similar to the flu, you know, it's something that can be unpleasant and occasionally quite dangerous. So I think it's worth despite an overall level of pandemic fatigue, 
being mindful of the fact that boosters still help. I think if you're over 50 and you haven't had a shot yet in 2022, it's smart to get one. I think, you know, masking is still a very personal decision, but one that I think we should make in certain circumstances that make sense for us individually, especially indoors where there's poor ventilation. And I think what's really important is that for folks who are infected and find themselves infected, really thinking about treatment options because there are a lot of treatments that are widely available now for different folks, depending on what medicines you may be on, that can really help prevent you from getting sicker. And I think those are really important messages. We've been hearing from Infectious Disease Chief uh, Dr. Tarkin Collis from Kaiser Permanente. He's talking about the snapshot in the Kaiser system here in Hawaii and what could be around the corner as the spread of the variant BA5 grows here in the islands. Support for HPR comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The virtual Will Weinstein Ethics Conversation Series examines business and legal ethics now to August 11th. Scheidler.hawaii.edu slash Weinstein. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, you might have heard that cryptocurrency prices have been cratering. Does that mean the blockchain is over? There are so many ways in which this might not work, but if it does work, it will change a lot of things. We sort out the hype from the potential. There's some chance that we're in the midst of a massive speculative bubble. What can the blockchain do for you? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspend. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at the growing troubles for a defense contractor facing fraud charges. Reporter Nick Ruby joins us today from Washington, D.C. Hi, Nick. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so uh, this story today uh, is uh, a, a gentleman who, uh, CEO of a company that uh, a lot of people know as Navitech. Right. So today's story is uh, really about the next chapter in the saga of Martin Ko and Navitech. Now, Ko is the embattled former CEO of Navitech, which has since been named Martin Defense Group after Martin Ko, of course. And so Navitech is an engineering firm that's received millions of dollars in federal contracts over the years, particularly from the U.S. Navy, to design new state-of-the-art vessels, uh, such as like underwater drones and other amphibious vehicles uh, for the military. And so Kale also has a history of making a ton of political donations to well-placed politicians uh, in federal government, including those in Hawaii's federal delegation, such as Brian Schatz and Maisie Hirono, um, as well as to other politicians who sort of control the purse strings, uh, most notably Susan Collins of Maine, who sits on the Senate Appropriation committee. But over the past couple of years, uh, we've seen K.O. get into some trouble with the federal government. Uh, So he's been charged by the Justice Department uh, for bilking the government out of millions of dollars in Paycheck Protection Program money, um, which is, of course, pandemic relief aid that was meant for small businesses. Uh, He's also been charged for funneling illegal campaign contributions to Collins others who support her, uh, including through a shell company that gave $150,000 to a super PAC that supported Susan Collins' re-election efforts in 2020, as we know she did win that election. Uh, Now, this is where Kao's former business partner sort of enters the picture, and this is what the story is about. Uh, His former business partner, Stephen Louie, who is the president and CEO of Pacific Marine and Supply, and he's the original founder of Navitech. Similar to Martin, Louis also has a history of making political contributions and getting major government contracts. But after Ko was arrested for the PPP fraud, he ended up filing a lawsuit against Ko to sort of retake control of this company he founded to sort of repair its reputation and hopefully make Ko pay for dragging it through all of this scandal and hoping to potentially recoup some of the costs. So where are we at with that lawsuit? Yeah, so with that lawsuit and others. So uh, he, this first lawsuit, um, has it went to a uh, arbitrator, and that arbitrator issued a pretty harsh ruling against Kao that effectively stripped him of 
his ownership interest in Martin Defense Group and, re, and gave it back to Stephen Louis and his his companies that he controls. Uh, it, the arbitrator also found that KO should be forced to pay more than $6 million in damages uh, to his former company for all of the alleged fraud he's uh, accused of committing. Uh, the arbitrator said this was a clearly egregious case of fraud that was motivated by by greed and a misplaced and unearned sense of entitlement. Now, these are direct quotes from the arbitration decision. Um, and. KO, of course, has, is planning to appeal this, according to his attorneys. But what it shows is that he does have a lot at stake here. Uh, the arbitrator noted that KO said he's worth $77 million, uh, but the $6 million settlement uh, will eat into that. Uh, the arbitrator also questioned whether KO telling the truth about being worth that much money because as we also know and what's also noted in the story is that in one of the criminal cases ko is being represented by a federal defender which generally federal public defenders only represent people who don't have enough money to uh, hire their own attorney uh, interesting yeah and then so then as far as the the criminal case i mean that's not uh, scheduled till what next year right that's right. The criminal cases uh, are set to go to trial in, uh, I believe, early 2023. Uh, in the meantime, uh, KO finds himself uh, named as a defendant in uh, at least two different lawsuits and others who are in his orbit, including his wife and other executives he, who, who worked for him, have also been named in these lawsuits because Louis is really trying to make ev everyone who he believes to have been involved in this alleged fraud against his company, his former company, pay for that. Wow. Pretty, pretty interesting story. But thanks so much, Nick. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. All righty. We have been talking with reporter Nick Ruby. You can read uh, his stories online at civilbeat.org. Uncertainty caused by supply chain issues caused by this pandemic could affect rail construction. Surprise, surprise. You know, we've had issues with wheels for the train and parts of the rail guideway, you know, with what's called frogs and shims. But material shortages due to the pandemic could add to the delays. The wheels were supposed to arrive in August, but now could be months away. One part of the project that has been paused due to exorbitant costs is the Pearl Highlands parking lot. Now, it was supposed to create spaces for Central Oahu residents who want to take the train into urban Honolulu, but the area is marshy and the bids came back far above what's been budgeted. We talked with CEO Lori Kaikina about what happens next as we try to find a more affordable way to serve those who live in Central Oahu. So for the Pearl Highlands parking garage, the reason, and it was a very difficult decision to choose to defer that parking garage temporarily um, and the main reason was the finances it's going to cost we're projecting 330 million dollars to build that parking garage 1600 stalls it comes out to over 200,000 per stall a local developer who just built a parking garage in Kaka'ako, he says it's more like 45,000. So this is astronomical. So when we presented it to administration, we presented it to the board, it, it just did not make sense that we keep this in. And the reason for the high cost is the soft substrate underneath, like you said, the marshy material. So we have to stabilize that material in order to build a structure over that. And it's not a new issue. I'm, I can't speak to why that location was selected for the parking garage. But what we are committed to is finding a better way to service the Central Oahu and North Shore residents. Some one board member said, why, instead of building a parking garage, why don't we do a spur up to Mililani Malka? Me personally, I love that idea. For $330 million, we, we can maybe not get all the way, but part way. Uh, another person suggested talk to A and B. Maybe at the Pearl Highlands Shopping Center, they're willing to talk about it, and they are. We met with them and they thought they were actually very excited at the prospect, but their main concern was how do we make sure the parking 
the people who are parking for the shopping center versus the rail. We need to keep that separate, but, but even they said there's workarounds on how to get around that, whether you validate your ticket. And we also need a simple way for the pedestrians to go from the parking garage over to our station. And another option was Leeward Community College. Build a parking structure over there, and they were not, um, they didn't slam the door in my face, but they, it was, okay, our main concern is the access to that campus is difficult. Uh, what if there's an emergency? We gotta have everyone um, exit. So even that, we, do we have to build um, an on-ramp to go straight into the parking structure? But there is alternatives that jointly, not just hard, we have to talk with our partners at the city, DTS, um, community members, our board, Let's find a better solution than building a $300 million parking garage. But we do need to find a solution. And is there a, a time point at which you need to make a decision to start moving in either the spur or you know yes. one of those two locations for the for the actual parking structures? There's, there's no set timeline, but sooner the better one. Of course, we want to service the, the community the best we can, as quick as we can. And of course, construction costs. As things you delay, the construction construction costs just keep increasing, so we need to start those conversations already. Okay. You talk about the costs. I mean, uh, are you worried about you know our our situation because the supply and demand yes. on things is is yes. it hasn't gotten any better actually over, yes, over this no. two-year period? Absolutely. So in our recovery plan, we do have contingency costs built in for what is going on right now. And actually, so to go back to your question about the recovery plan and FTA communications, there's a thing called a risk refresh. And Hart did one of its own, and we, we took into account all of the risks that we think are out there and um, allocated a dollar amount to it. That's the known unknowns. And FTA did their own risk refresh. And Hart and FTA are pretty much in line with those known unknowns. Where we're not in alignment is the unknown unknowns. And so we've made assumptions on just those things you talked about, right? Supply chain, resources, shipping things in. What does that look like? And so we put in contingencies, but FTA feels we might have to bump that up a little bit more. And so we're, we need to wait to hear back from them. What is that little bit more that you're talking about? To, do we need to increase our number in our recovery plan? You're talking to the uh, contractors, but are, are there any hot ticket items? I mean, is it the steel, concrete? Steel, concrete, I don't know. no, you named it. Steel, concrete, even sprinkler heads, right? You know, just things normally we wouldn't have a problem getting. They are having difficulties. So there's long lead items that, okay, now instead of taking only two weeks to come in, it's gonna take three months. So all of that has to be calculated in. Is there anything that's uh, being delayed because of the su uh, supply? chain issue? Right now, no. We haven't heard anything from our contractor STG or Hitachi. As far as the fixes on the trains, that's all good? Uh, and the and the frogs and the, the wheels, so that's all good too? On the wheel rail interface, so we brought those welders in from the mainland and did the welding. And so what we're doing right now is we're developing a tool to take those measurements, because over time the weld is going to wear down so we're, we're developing a tool so that there's repeatability in those measurements so whether i take it hitachi or D dts takes it it's all the same if there's if there's numbers that aren't in the tolerance once we get the consistency in the measurement if there's not intolerance then we're going to have to fix those issues and um wait, there was something else i want to tell you about that oh so that's the temporary fix right now is the weld. The long-term fix is to replace the wheels. And Hitachi is already they're working on the design for the replacement wheels, the first one. So this is an issue. So Hitachi's first set of wheels was supposed to be here in August. It's now being pushed out a couple of months and it does go back to the supply chain. But the reason I'm saying it's not an issue because it's not holding up trial running. That's just the long-term fix, but they said getting the material from the manufacturer in the mainland is an issue. So that's just something we're gonna have to just kind of watch, watch. and see how it, it moves back your construction schedule, whether it's a critical path kind of thing or something so that you the, can deal with. The wheels are not on the critical path. It's just, like I said, the welding is a temporary fix. The wheels are the long-term fix. So 
If it pushes out to December, that's okay. But we want to test the new wheels on one train first. Great, it's working great. Okay, let's go ahead and retrofit the whole rest of the, the fleet. Uh, how soon do you expect to hear back from um, uh, the feds on the recovery plan? So ideally, we'd like to get this all wrapped up before the end of the year. It is an election year, so I'd hate to have to start the process with all brand new people next year. So they're just as anxious as us. They're very communicated, saying we want to get this done quickly, too. And the goal is before the end of the year. We have been hearing from Lori Kaikina, Hart CEO. She was talking about the delayed construction on the Pearl Highlands parking garage, a key element in servicing the residents of central Oahu. The Hart board just welcomed a new board member, Robert Yu, who previously served as CFO of Hart. He is currently the head of the Oahu Transit Services, the entity which handles the bus and handy, uh, handy van service, and previously worked in the City Transportation Services Department. today's Backyard Quiz, we tested your knowledge of one of the title characters from the Disney animated classic Lilo and Stitch. The film was first released in the summer of 20, or 2002, and it is cel- celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. Stitch is the creation of animator Chris Sanders, who first developed a character in 1985 for a children's book that was ultimately turned down by publishers. Sanders was a storyboard artist at Disney in the 1990s during its animated feature renaissance that uh, featured films like Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. In the midst of its success, the company wanted to try its hand at a smaller, less expensive animated film. Sanders pitched his Stitch character and spent the next few years bringing that story to life. But fans of the film know that wasn't his name at the start of the film. He's first referred to as Experiment 626, which is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. And congrats to Robert from Honolulu. You got it right. If you have an idea for a quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And stick around. We'll have our interview with Lilo and Stitch creator Chris Sanders coming up next. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect Oahu's water resources, offering tips to conserve water, such as taking shorter showers and fixing leaks. Updates on Red Hill at protectoahuwater.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Matthew McKay, author of Seeking Jordan. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how I learned the truth about death and the invisible universe. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to strengthening island communities by assisting local food bank networks on Oahu and the neighbor islands. Matson.com. Two thousand and two was a memorable year for movies. Blockbusters like Spider Man and Lord of the Rings drove moviegoers to theaters in droves. Also released that year was Disney's Lilo and Stitch. It was the first feature length animated film to be set in Hawaii, and it was a huge success. It grossed nearly three hundred million dollars worldwide and received an Oscar nomination. It also spawned three sequels and three television series. The idea for Lilo and Stitch started with its co-writer and co-director, Chris Sanders. He started out as a storyboard artist on classics like The Lion King and Mulan. And more recently, he directed popular animated films, How to Train Your Dragon and The Croods. Sanders lives in California and took time recently to reflect on the 20th anniversary of the release of Lilo and Stitch with The Conversation's Russell Subiono. From the first day of writing the script to the day it was released in theaters, did you at any time think it would achieve the level of success that it did? 
I was hopeful, but of course you don't know that. Yeah. I would say though, that a lot of the things that created Lilo and Stitch were from Mulan. And so one of the aspects that I hoped for, for Lilo and Stitch was that it would have the staying power. I hoped to create something that would really just be ubiquitous and that would stick around. And that's what happened with Lilo and Stitch. Stitch in particular, when I go to Florida and I visit Disney World, I can go into different stores. And even here at Disneyland, I go into a store, they might have an entire section of the store devoted to Stitch and only more so every year. And so the thing about that that I am so grateful for and so proud of and, and just still so amazed by is that he really had this ability to join the core of that Disney universe. So you can buy a picture frame and Mickey and Minnie and Donald and Stitch will be on the frame. And that just, it's so thrilling to me because that character has been embraced by people in a way that I really and truly could only have hoped for. One other thing in the movie that is uniquely Hawaiian is that you chose as the center of the movie, this idea of Ohana. Ohana means family. Family means nobody gets left behind. Was Ohana something you knew about prior to writing the movie? I have come to believe there's a destiny for these films, I guess would be the way to say it. I don't want to get too like all like hoogly woogly about it, but no, it wasn't there in the beginning. The genesis of, of Lilo and Stitch was partially that I wanted to create a, a film around the idea of a villain becoming a hero. So we spend a lot of time killing villains at the end of Disney films. And this time I thought, let's, let's change that up. I want a villain that becomes the hero. So we have this little guy and I was looking for a place to set the film. And originally I was thinking like maybe rural Kansas or something. And there was a reason for that. I didn't want to like really gather a crowd. It was a reaction to Milan where we were moving like armies of people and we were dealing with cities full of people. And logistically that can be pretty tiring. <laughs> so I thought, okay, next film, smaller population. And as I was working on Lilo and Stitch, developing it and getting ready to pitch the idea, I looked up at my wall and I had a map of Hawaii because I had recently visited. And it took me a while, a few hours. And suddenly I thought, wait a minute, that's a place that has an intimacy. And why wouldn't I just set it there as a story? It was, it was, I don't know. There was something so like magical about it. It was, I was kind of resistant to it. Even it just, just myself. I was like, can I do that? <laughs> it's weird to say that. And I thought, yeah, why not? Why not set this in Hawaii? After we screened the film for the first time, just for ourselves in story sketch form, we didn't have any animation. We just do it all in story sketch first. We were looking at this film and we were seeing this character change from bad to good, but we didn't have a reason. He was changing from bad to good pretty much just because it was our plan. Like, see, he, see, he became good. And after the first screening, I was the one that said, we don't have the engine yet. We have all these things, but we need the engine. We need the reason that he becomes good. And we realized that Stitch has a family that loves him and that that was the thing that would change him. The idea of Ohana was the perfect thing to place around this character. And that would be the thing that would change him. That would change the course of his life. We didn't know originally, but by complete just accident, I put Stitch in the one place that had the best, most beautiful interpretation of family ever. Did you have to talk to people from Hawaii or did you have to come to Hawaii to do a little bit more research as to how deep it goes or how inclusive it can be? We did. We came to Hawaii, but we also continued to make connections with everyone that we could and that we needed to. So when it came to the music and the culture and the language, we cast as many people as we could that knew what they were doing. And we found as many people like a good example would be the Kumahula. He staged the dance sequences that we videotaped and gave to the animators because we understood from those connections that this is something that you've got to get it right. You do not mess around with this. It's not my culture, but I'm in charge of getting it right. So Mark Kelii Ho'omalu was our kumuhula and you know he told us everything we needed to know about everything. He was one of those people that gave us more than we ever could have hoped for, culturally, language-wise, just stories, everything. But he also co-wrote some of the music with Alan Silvestri. Happy people, my 
So he, he is just the perfect example. But we had many, many people that we got together with. We also partnered with the uh, Kamehameha School and their choir is, is the choir that sings in the movie, for example. So that was just for us an exercise in humility and letting people who know what they're doing help us. And speaking about local voices, I wanted to ask you about the actors that you chose to voice the characters. This movie came out a year after Shrek, which I get the feeling that that was kind of a big turning point in animated feature where more and more well-known movie actors started getting cast for these voiceover roles. But your movie didn't really go after the most famous actors out there. In fact, you got some real locals to voice some of the characters. You got Tia Carrere, you got Jason Scott Lee. You sure it's a dog? Uh-huh. He used to be Collie before he got ran over. How's it? Nani. Did you catch fire again? Nah, just the stage. Listen, I was wondering, if you're not doing anything this- David, I told you, I can't. I, look, I gotta go. The kid at table three is throwing poi again. Maybe some other time, okay? Don't worry. She likes her butt and fancy hair. I know. I read her diary. You got Kuneva Mook, who you were just talking about. Was it a conscious decision to cast Hawaiians to voice the Hawaiian characters? Yeah, there are two sides of that question. But the first most important one was, yes, we found as many people that we could that were from Hawaii. The only one that we struggled with was the character of Lilo. And we had casting directors scour Hawaii at that time. We couldn't find the right voice. And that was a very, very difficult voice to cast. Even here in the mainland, it was Dean Deblois. He was my co-writer and co-director. And we partnered in everything on this film. We worked so hard looking for the right voice. And you get to the point where you think, are we just going to have to settle for like an okay voice, you know? And it's weird because it's elusive. I'll know it when I hear it, you know? And one day this girl came in and her name was Devay Chase and she sat at the microphone and she started doing her thing. And Dean and I looked at each other and we knew we had found her. So that was the only voice that we, that we really wished we could have cast from Hawaii, but, and we gave it a shot. It wasn't in the cards at that time. On the subject of famous versus non-famous, we get pressure sometimes from the studio, but I think that we found the oh, the perfect cast. And continuing to speak about voices, in addition to coming up with the idea for the film and co-directing and co-writing it, you're also the voice of Stitch. And it's an interesting choice, something that can be both cute and scary at the same time, I think. How'd you come up with the voice for Stitch? Originally, the concept was that he wouldn't speak at all. He might make a few little noises like growls and stuff, but he would never speak. As we worked on the film, it became obvious that he would have to talk. And sometimes he would be talking more than we wished he would, but he had to for the role. As we pitched the early storyboards, when I pitched my boards, I would just give that character that voice. It's a voice that I would use to call people on the phone and annoy them. And just, you know, it was just this dumb voice I used from time to time when it when it felt right. <laughs> but eventually we we're talking about, you know, Stitch's voice. And Dean said, well, why don't we just use yours? You're not famous and you're not going to cause trouble. Because the concern on Dean and my part was that if we did hire Robert Redford or Robin Williams, and they only had like 15 lines, and even those lines were like two words at a time, right? That there might be some trouble that would develop from that. It would be very easy to imagine that eventually the studio would come around and say, well, if you got Robin Williams or Robert Redford, why don't you give them a bigger role? And that would be a disaster because that would mean that we were moving the film and pointing it in the wrong direction just to placate somebody, right? And we didn't know that that was going to happen, but we thought, let's ensure that we never even have to have that discussion by putting somebody like me in that role. And nobody wants more of me, right? So, <laughs> so, so it was like, it was perfect. Is it something that you can go in and out of, or is it something you have to warm up to? No, I can just go in and out of it. Do you think Moana could have been made without Lilo and Stitch? I never thought about that before. I like the, I like the idea that maybe we've paved the way for things and that maybe the idea that was like, you know, the idea that you don't have to do one film in one place and then you can never visit it again. So I, I was really excited that Moana was revisiting that region. 
I rewatched the film last night and I probably haven't seen it since I took my kids to see it in theaters 20 years ago. And I was reminded just how strong the theme of family is that runs through it. And I just love that it's not just this picturesque idea of a family, but that how family is sometimes just a group of people who love each other for who they are. Mm. When you look back over the years, how do you feel about the legacy of Lilo and Stitch? I'm so proud of it. And, and you know, we were busy doing certain things. And you're so busy making this film and, and getting all the story problems worked out that you don't necessarily think about the larger impact that it might have. And one of the wonderful things about something like Lilo and Stitch making a movie is that it endures. It has this staying power. And over the years, more and more people see it for the first time. And over the years, both Dean and I have heard from people who have been touched by this film in various ways, and it has really meant something to them. And that's just absolutely so exciting. And yeah, films will find their audience and it's it's just always going to be out there. That's the neat thing about animation. Animation is not the easiest thing to make. It's a very labor intensive thing and it takes many, many years to get one made. But once it's made, it sticks around and it continues to speak to people. And that's just, it's amazing and it's wonderful. Right on. Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate your time. Okay, take it easy. That was Chris Sanders, co-director and co-writer of Lilo and Stitch, reflecting on the film's 20-year anniversary with HPR's Russell Subiano. Sanders says Disney is working on a live-action version of the film, though he's not involved in the project. And thanks to HPR Sophia McCullough, who helped with the, arranging the interview and wrote today's Backyard Quiz. Well, that does it for us for this Tuesday. Tomorrow we learn about reforestation efforts on the Big Island. Got a story idea for us? Share your comments or questions by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.